From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. And that includes people who don't claim any particular religious tradition or even a particular spirituality. I've worked with young adults whose primary allegiance is to call themselves anarchists. And you know what? They're out there doing the work in the deserts of southern Arizona, responding to migrants who are losing their lives because we forced them into the deserts to try and come north and look for a job. And when we work with those folks, when we find common cause, we discover that a lot of what we think are the issues that divide us actually disappear because at the center of it is a shared commitment to make the world a better place. That is Rick Ufford Chase. He was moderator of the Presbyterian Church USA from 2004 to 2006. He was at the General Assembly in Portland in June to advocate for social justice and eco-justice causes as co-moderator of the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. He took a few moments to stop by KBOO and speak with me about his new book, Faithful Resistance, Gospel Visions for the Church in a Time of Empire. Welcome, Rick, to Progressive Spirit. Thanks, John. It's good to be with you. Glad to have you here. Tell us about uh, this book. You've got 10 chapters, 15 contributors. How did this book come to be? Well, so I've never tried to write a book before, so it was quite an interesting event for me. I uh, I found I stumbled into a little collective that is just being created. Uh, it's an editor's collective that's designed to try and help authors get really cool stuff out about the church. It's uh-huh. called Unshelved. And a friend of mine named Eric Clark, who's a pastor here in Portland. Yep, I know Eric. Yeah, Eric's a part of that collective. And uh, he and I just started talking last summer. I went to him and said, I've got this vision for uh, trying to put a book together that really speaks to claiming a progressive vision for the church and the work that we'll have to do to do that. And uh, do you have any interest in working with me? And so it was a match made in heaven. It's been great. All right. So how did you get uh, these contributors? Well, so, you know, most of my adult life has been spent collaborating with really amazing people on all kinds of social justice movement uh, work. And so Eric and I hit pretty early on on the idea that if this was a book written by a white male who's 52 years old, who's been educated in Western universities and is straight and has three kids and plenty of uh, economic stability. And, you know, I I hit pretty much every category of privilege. And what I wanted to write was a book Mm. that talked about a church willing to take on privilege. And so it didn't make any sense at all for me to try and write that book on my own. We needed to do it with help from colleagues who are caught up in the struggle in real and concrete ways. So we went to look for those folks. And, uh, and so the, the lineup of the book is that uh, each of these uh, contributors writes a chapter and then you have a response. Almost. Uh, basically, what we did was we asked each of uh, 10 contributors, though some of them were written collectively with more than one person. Mm-hmm. Uh, each, each group or person wrote a 1500 word essay to open a chapter on a topic that I gave them. And okay. then I added 25 to 3500 words of my own reflection and kind of bounced off the work that they did. So Empire, that's the book, uh, Faithful Resistance, Gospel Visions for the Church in a Time of Empire. If you had to give a definition of empire in three to four sentences, what would it be? Well, empire is easy to describe if you don't live in it or don't benefit from it and very difficult to describe if you do, uh-huh. right? That's the problem. Okay, there you go. And so the issue for the church is it's the water we swim in. Here in the United States, our church has been in the heart of empire, blessed by empire, and blessing empire for decades, maybe for centuries. And so the issue is how do we open our eyes to the reality of how power is used in a hegemonic fashion around the world, both in our own communities here locally, but as soon as you step outside of your own comfort zone and into other cultures, other places, it's much easier to see just how negative the influences of that kind of unbridled power can be. 
Well, it's just like the whole system of what we called mission. I mean, right throughout throughout history. I mean, since Constantine. Right. Exactly. So what we've got in the in the Protestant Church, at least in the United States and Catholic Church as well, what we've got is a history of missionizing people in a way that has been fully embedded in the mission, the, 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 the simultaneous mission of empire to colonize people. And one has blessed the other for many, many years. We're recording this show in Portland at KBU. I would imagine, I can't speak for everyone, but I would think the typical listener here would think of organized religion on a spectrum from indifference to disgust. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so, yeah, I think so, too. I mean, I think that describes where my own kids are. Uh-huh. And frankly, it describes where I am on some days. You know, I, I'm deeply disturbed by the ways in which uh, we have found all kinds of ways to accommodate a scripture that is radical and, you know, in, in my judgment, written in a very similar moment in history where Jesus was standing up against the Roman Empire in first century mm-hmm. Palestine in a way that has huge relevance in our world today. And we've managed to pacify that radical gospel. We found all kinds of ways to just make it easier to accept, easier to chew on, easier to uh, to bless our own way of being in the world. Yeah, you talk about quite that uh, in the book about uh, kind of personal piety or uh, spiritualizing. Uh, these radical texts, even even the parables of Jesus. Yeah, it comes down to, you know, we found a way to make it all about me and my Jesus. It's a very personal Uh message, right? The problem with that, of course, is that it's got nothing to do with what Jesus was about. Jesus was trying to call out the most powerful interests of his time. He stood up to an empire that was entirely all powerful, and he did it by banding together a small group of people who simply committed to live a different way. And that's really the heart of the book. It's saying church needs to become that once again today. We need to let go of this assumption that somehow uh, relevance comes with with numbers and recognize that actually the more we get tight together, the more we commit to follow that radical gospel in small groups, the more power we actually have to to, to influence the, the negative tendencies of empire. So you have been involved in church. You were the moderator of the Presbyterian Church General Assembly, what, 2004 to 2005? That's right. Uh, You serve on the Presbyterian Mission Agency. So what does it mean to be kind of within the system as well as without it? Well, that's a really interesting question for me vocationally. Uh I've, I've made a series of decisions that have been both conscious and unconscious throughout my life to try and place myself on the edge of the institution of church, just far enough from the center of the church so that I can get away with things that probably wouldn't be uh, be allowed if I were deeper cl- or deeper in or closer, and just close enough to the institution of church so that I have some hope that we can continue to influence the institution of church, right? That's the art form. Mm-hmm. So all my life, I've looked for those spots. You know, uh, for 20 years, my wife and I committed to live on the U.S.-Mexico border, and I was a part of the mission program of the Presbyterian Church, but in a forgotten part of the world, working in a, in a largely unnoticed way on the issues of empire right there where the first and the two-thirds worlds meet on a on a on a land border and where the issues that we're talking about are uh, readily apparent to anybody who wants to look. More recently, my wife and I made a decision to go to Stony Point, New York and become co-directors of a small, largely forgotten conference center owned by the Presbyterian Church. And we chose that location because we thought we could get away with some creative work there. So what kind of work do you get get away with there? Well, we went to Stony Point intentionally to try and create a multi-religious community living in residence at Stony Point Center that is committed to the work of building a movement for an interfaith or interreligious movement for social justice and peace and nonviolence. 
So, so you that have J- Jews and Muslims together and Christians? Jews, Muslims, and Christians. Okay. Yes, together. There are about 20 of us living in that community now. It's slowly but surely coming together. It takes a long time to form that kind of community. We're about six years into the project. And, the, and there are, at the moment, I guess, uh, five or six Muslims in the community, five Jewish residents in the community, about 10 or a dozen Christian of all different kinds. And we just commit to live together and support the staff in running the conference center and making it a welcoming place, especially for social justice-oriented work. And then we try to show up and be proximate to those struggles for justice that matter the most in the world today. So uh, interfaith work, is that tough? Oh, it's tough for all kinds of reasons, right? I mean, it's been tough mm-hmm. for me because, uh, you know, I, I'd heard people say for years, oh, I never got stronger as a Christian until I was in interfaith relationships. Yeah. And it sounds kind of like a throwaway, but I have to say my experience of being in this set of relationships is that my Muslim and Jewish colleagues are teaching me what it means to claim my own faith tradition. And the reason for that is that we are in such a Christian dominant culture, though largely secular, it's still a very Christian dominant culture mm-hmm. here in the United States. And so, once again, when you live in the midst of that kind of privilege, you don't see your own your own experience. You can't see that it's any different. It's just the water in which we swim, right? So, for me, the challenge of, of being Christian in this community has been to take seriously the traditions that I've been brought up on and to try and invest them, reinvest them with genuine meaning in the same way that my Jewish colleagues do as they practice Shabbat every week, or my Muslim colleagues do as they practice Ramadan every year, right? There's a mm-hmm. there's an intentionality that comes with kind of differentiating yourself from the dominant culture. Rick Ufford Chase is my guest. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, he's the author of Faithful Resistance, Gospel Visions for the Church in a Time of Empire. Uh, talk about a little bit your work on the U.S.-Mexico border. You were there for 20 years. Yeah, what drew me to the border initially was uh, my interest in Central American refugees and the crises of Central America. This was during the 1980s when Ronald Reagan was funding uh, significant wars in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua, Mm -hmm. and the attendant Uh, uh, movement of vast numbers of people, more than a million people out of 5 million Salvadorans fled the country and came north to the United States during the 1980s. Some 800,000 Guatemalans came north. Uh, Nicaraguans dissipated and and headed for Costa Rica, Central America, Mexico, and the U.S. And on the border, uh, Tucson was the heart of a faith-based, a church-based movement to support those refugees as they crossed the border. The reason that was necessary is because the Reagan administration couldn't very well fund the wars of these governments in El Salvador and Guatemala and then allow that there were political asylees fleeing those very governments. And so their answer was, well, they're not political asylees. They're economic migrants. It Mm. just flew in the face of what everyone knew to be true. And so the church movement basically stepped up and began smuggling people across the U.S.-Mexico border and moving them into a network of of safe churches called Sanctuary in those years. And uh, and I, I was drawn to the border to be a part of that work. And then you got involved in the church in, in, in many different... Well, you actually grew up in the church, didn't I you? did, yes. My dad's a Presbyterian minister, now retired and living in uh, northern Vermont. But I grew up in an 1,800-member, large, middle-of-the-road, moderate Presbyterian church in south-central Pennsylvania, and it was my whole life. It, everything about that church really defined my, my growing up years. Now we're in a time of, of anxiety, uh, Every, every 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 time I go to one of these meetings, I, I you know they just talk about how all the church is fallen and dying and all that kind of stuff. And and what I hear from you saying saying your book is, well, let's let it happen. 
Yeah, not only let's let it happen, but rather that it's a gift from God, okay. right? That, that in fact, we've been on the wrong track for 50 years. And, you know, my dad began his ministry in 1968, which was the last year the Presbyterian Church USA experienced numerical growth. We've uh-huh. been on a steady decline since then. We peaked out at about four and a half million members nationwide in that year. And now we're down under 1.9 million members, right? So my judgment is that though churches felt vibrant and in those years, in fact, they were in in too many instances convolutions of the Christian gospel. And what's happening is that as we get get smaller, leaner, more nervous and anxious, perhaps uh, we're we're getting closer to what Jesus had in mind in the first place. <laughs> Whittling it down to the size of Gideon's army. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe. Exactly. And there's a sense in which that puts us uh, on the edge because you know I have to say you know I'm part of this institution. I've got a salary. I've got pension. I've got I'm part of the problem as a minister, you know, in terms of um, the whole professional ethos of the thing. But isn't that the problem, John, for all of us who are who carry so much privilege, right? Yeah. We are always going to be a part of the problem. And the question is, how do we recognize the ways in which we carry privilege mm-hmm. and then intentionally ally ourselves with the folks who do not carry that privilege? And have we? it's a constant process of reminding ourselves where we have to be located and who we have to be listening to and where we have to take our direction from. And that's going to be true right now, especially for many of my colleagues in the Presbyterian Church who have built their careers around the professional church, and I think they're going to have to give it up. And mm-hmm. letting it go is not going to be an easy task for many of them. And so this book, though I I was uh, deeply in, you know, I wrote this book for those kind of folks, and it's not going to be an easy book for them to read. My closest friends are going to have as, a, as hard a time reading this book as the people with whom I disagree. Yeah, because it's really, it, it's cutting to the heart of... Uh of one's own salary. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's face it, right? We've we have promised several generations of ministers mm-hmm. that if they do the right thing and they show up every day and they act ethically, we will take care of them and their families and they can count on that. And we've got a phenomenal benefits program through our board of pensions and I've been a part of that program too, right? Mm-hmm. The problem of course is it doesn't say anything in the Christian gospel about if you show up, we promise you'll never be at risk. In fact, it says the opposite. It says the more you show up, the more at risk you're going to be. That's the nature of what it means to actually follow Jesus, the Prince of Peace. So the question then might be, Rick, what, why bother with the church at all if we're actually caring about resisting empire? I mean, um, is, is there something within the institution and its history and its resources that can help? Well, there's, you know, I actually note in the book the the struggle I've had around that very question. Yeah. And uh, my dialogue partner over many decades around that question has been uh, a, a friend, mentor, and colleague to me, uh, John Fife, who oh, yeah. was the leader of the sanctuary movement in many ways. Yeah, I remember his uh, he'd sleep in homeless shelters uh, to make it across the this country as a moderator. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and John, you know, when I was a young adult, just arriving in Tucson and, uh, and feeling full of myself, I used to argue <laughs> with John about this all the time. I'd say, hey, you know, why the church? Church, man, let's just blow it off and go do the work we're called to do. And John brought me up short in a compelling way that I've held on to for now three decades. He said, Rick, you show me another institution that is located in every community around the world and that has at the heart of that institution a gospel tradition that calls it to justice. And I'll buy in, but I don't think it's out there. 
I think the church is the only game in town for the kind of work we're called to do. And further, Presbyterians come from a Reformed tradition, where our tradition actually tells us that if we're being faithful, we are constantly challenging what we believe to be true, constantly learning from the people around us, constantly re-engaging our faith in ways that challenge us. For me, that's a pretty great place to be. Do you think it's important to have... um uh, a spirituality of some sort. I don't know what word to use in terms of resistance to empire. What do you think is the value of a spirituality or spiritual communities or spiritual traditions? I find it useful. It works for me. It helps to keep me grounded. You know, Rob, uh, Monsignor Romero, uh, the Archbishop of El Salvador, who was martyred in 1980, Romero once preached that um, we, we, our task is not to depend on hope because unfulfilled hope leads to despair, but instead to be faithful to what we know we're called to do and be, to get up every day and do what we know we're supposed to do. That's the heart of my faith. Just knowing every day I get up and because of who I am and what I believe, I'm called to act in a certain way in the world, to build our communities, to build positive relationships. Now, there are other people who are going to come at that at all kinds of ways. And I'm going to be sharing the way I do it because I think it's pretty valuable stuff. And if anybody's interested and intrigued enough to say, hey, how can I experience that too? I'm going to be enthusiastic about welcoming them into that moment. And there are all kinds of things I can learn from the way other people do this as well. And that includes people who don't claim any particular religious tradition or even a particular spirituality. I've worked with young adults whose primary allegiance is to call themselves anarchist. And you know what? They're out there doing the work in the deserts of Southern Arizona, responding to migrants who are losing their lives because we forced them into the deserts to try and come north and look for a job. And when we work with those folks, when we find common cause, we discover that a lot of what we think are the issues that divide us actually disappear because at the center of it is a shared commitment to make the world a better place. One of the issues before the Presbyterian Church General Assembly when it met in Portland was fossil fuel divestment, and you were a big part of that movement. Why is that important for the church to take on this issue? Well, because if we don't take action, all of us together immediately, we're going down. I mean, I don't understand yeah. how people can have this conversation and not recognize that this is a life and death issue. I live in Stony Point, New York, a little tiny town 30 miles north of Manhattan on the Hudson River. Okay, we're 35 miles up the river. And when Superstorm, when Superstorm Sandy came in three and a half years ago, we took an 11-foot storm surge in that town and it wiped out the low-income housing in our community. And some 120 people ended up living at Stony Point Center for the next four months while we tried to patch their lives back together. And I've yeah. walked with those folks for the last three years as they've tried to work with the state to figure out how to get to secure housing. We're now four years past the event and they're still struggling to try and figure that out. And that's one little tiny community in one storm event, right? What, during my moderatorial term, we had Hurricanes Charlie in Florida and Hurricane Katrina, right? And we, these, we take them for granted now, mm -hmm. but these things are directly related to climate change. And if the church isn't willing to step out first and lead the way, my goodness, we've got a big problem here. All we're asking, all we're asking is that we withdraw our financial resources and refuse to benefit from the fossil fuel industry that clearly, undeniably, is putting all of us at risk. And those who are in opposition are 
the Board of Pensions? Of course they are, because the more you have to protect in the institution, the harder it is to claim the prophetic voice and the moral imagination to say things could be different. That's always going to be the challenge. It's why in every movement eventually becomes institution and every institution eventually has to be reformed by a new movement. That's a natural course of history. It's no different in our church than any other place, but let's take it seriously and do the work we're called to do for that reform movement. If you're just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is Rick Ufford Chase. Uh, he's the author of Faithful Resistance, Gospel Visions for the Church in a Time of Empire. You talk also about the new way of understanding the institution itself, seminaries that are, are totally different. You talk a little bit about what, what you might sketch for the future of the church in 50 years as, as it resists empire. Can you talk about that? Sure. So the first half of the book actually lays out what I name as the five huge challenges that are going to happen in the world around us, and the church must respond to in order to be relevant uh, yeah let's start with those so those are empire mm -hmm. is the first one systems of white supremacy and all that's represented right now by the black lives matter movement right. is the second the third is the question of climate change the fourth is the question of what i'm calling religious exceptionalism and the roots of religiously motivated or described violence and the fifth is the tendency to try and exclude rather than include, which cuts to the heart of Jesus's message and corrupts that message. So I name those as the primary challenges that the church is gonna to have to struggle with and own if we're gonna be relevant. The second half of the book is really designed to look at, okay, if we took those challenges seriously at each level of church, what would be the implications? So there's a chapter that looks at how the local congregations and faith communities can become the locus of a resistance to empire movement. And as you say, there's a chapter that's on what it would take to reform our theological education to actually tool us for a non-professional style of ministry in the future that is centered around these small, quick-moving communities of faith that don't necessarily depend on paid leadership who have had years and years of training, but instead in which everyone takes responsibility together for the theological reflection that they need to do in order to be faithful in the world. There's another chapter that looks at mission and how we're going to have to rethink mission, decolonizing our mission and our faith and delinking us from those projects of empire and instead choosing to stand on the margins in accompaniment with people who are actually really desperate. And then there, there's a chapter that looks at, in the Presbyterian world, uh, we've, we talk so much about how we value connectionalism. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eric Clark offers the essay for that section and leads with a proposition I found very, very um, uh, thought-provoking, in which he says, gosh, you know, I don't think connectionalism is a value. Solidarity is a durable value. Yeah. And then finally, there's a chapter that's titled, Dismantling the Corporate Church as a Step Toward Liberation. You are also the co-moderator of the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. What are some of the issues on uh, top of your uh, agenda there? Well, so the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship, this, this demands, like most things, a little bit of history, right? Yeah. This is this amazing group of people. It started in the 1940s to support pastors who were conscientious objectors to World War II, the popular war, right? And, uh -huh. uh, and so it's always been this kind of fringe, independent organization that's poking at the conscience of the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church USA. And in the last 15, 20 years, we have remade this organization into, for my money, the most effective organization in the church to hold us accountable to a vision of nonviolence and nonviolent direct action as a way to deal with the huge intractable questions of violence in our time. 
time. So that group is out doing that work all the time. We're doing accompaniment work with our sisters and brothers in Colombia. We've been back and forth to Israel and Palestine numerous times. My colleague, Emily Brewer, now the director of the organization, just led a trip to uh, Iraqi Kurdistan. We're showing up. We're being proximate to the violence, as uh, Jim, Jim Wallace would say from Sojourners, right? We're mm-hmm. showing up and being there. And what that has helped us to do is to become a very relevant force in the General Assembly. Because when we come to General Assembly, we have direct experience of what's going on in the world, and people listen to those who have direct experience. You talked about uh, Israel-Palestine. Of course, there are some overtures before the General Assembly regarding divestment, the BDS movement. Where is the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship on Israel-Palestine? Well, uh, Israel-Palestine. In 2001, shortly after the September 11 attacks, Mm -hmm. uh, we had already planned to take a first delegation into Israel and Palestine from the Presbyterian Peace Fellowship. I was on that trip, and it blew me out of the water to experience what was really taking place in Palestine, to be with both Christians and Christians and Muslims in that in that community and to understand what the implications of the occupation really are. And we came out of that experience convicted that we needed to begin to work on those issues. It was a remarkable God thing in my judgment that three years later, I was elected moderator of a general assembly that had before it an overture to begin a process of what we called phased selective divestment from companies that were doing business in a way that benefited from or supported Israel's occupation of Palestine. Very specific, very thoughtful language. And my job for the next two years became to defend that action of the General Assembly and explain it to people across the church and outside the church as well. And it led us into a process that that took more than 12 years to unfold, in which eventually, two years ago at our General Assembly in Detroit, the church, the General Assembly voted narrowly, but voted in favor of divesting from three specific companies, Hewlett-Packard, Motorola Solutions, and Caterpillar Corporation, because of their very specific work supporting Israel and the IDF in Israel, the Israeli Defense Forces in the occupation. I believe it was exactly the right thing to do. The Presbyterian Peace Fellowship has worked with other partners, one called the Israel-Palestine Mission Network. Uh, uh, We've worked very closely with those partners to try and make that happen. It's very challenging to do for any Christians and especially for Presbyterians because we've spent much of the last 50 years defining and redefining our theology to assure that we will never again allow ourselves to be caught up in anti-Semitism. We've tried really hard to take responsibility for the implications of 1900 years of Christian on Jewish violence culminating in the Holocaust. And we've actually reinterpreted our own biblical text, something that's a deeply ingrained practice for us to reclaim a space that is healthy in our relationships with our Jewish sisters and brothers. And so to take this action that very specifically calls out the state of Israel for its abuse has not been an easy thing for our church, but it's exactly the right thing to do as long as we continue to maintain our commitment to stand against anti-Semitism wherever and whenever it appears in our communities. Rick Upper-Chase has been my guest on Progressive Spirit, author of Faithful Resistance, Gospel Visions for the Church in a Time of Empire. Rick, thanks for this book. Thanks for being with me today. John, I'm so appreciative. Thank you. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. The website where you get all the good stuff, including podcasts, is progressivespirit.net. From KBOO Portland, I'm John Schuck. Be welcome.